The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. The Nation Magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later today, we'll speak with Pramila Jayapal. She's co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, and she represents Seattle in the House. We'll ask how she went from being a young immigrant with a job in investment banking to becoming a lifelong organizer. But first, the Republicans, from Reagan to Trump. For that, we turn to Rick Perlstein. Rick, of course, is the author of the classic book, Nixon Land, The Rise of a President and the Fracturing of America. It was a New York Times bestseller. It was picked as one of the best nonfiction books of the year by just about everybody. Then came The Invisible Bridge, and now, at last, we have his new book, Reaganland, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. Rick is the former chief national correspondent for The Village Voice, a former online columnist for The New Republic and Rolling Stone. His journalism and essays have appeared in The New York Times, Newsweek, and The Nation. We reach him today at home in Chicago. Hi, Rick. Hi, John. Great to be back. Let's start in 1976. Jimmy Carter, the governor of Georgia, ran against Gerald Ford, the man nobody voted for for president, and the man who pardoned Nixon. One of the first articles I ever published was about Carter beating George Wallace in the Florida Democratic primary. It seemed to me, and a lot of other leftish people at the time, that the biggest threat to liberal Democrats was George Wallace, who threatened to draw the white working class of the North out of the Democratic Party with an openly racist and not so subtly violent appeal. Jimmy Carter was a white Southerner who seemed to be a strong liberal. He stopped George Wallace in Florida, and we thought our troubles were over. Once Jimmy Carter was asked what he was most proud of as a politician, and he said, beating George Wallace <laughs> in the Florida primary in 1976. And I remember people were kind of laughing at it and you know, giving this an example of how kind of out of touch and strange Jimmy Carter was, but it really was remarkable accomplishment for exactly the reason you say. And it was also um, one of the greatest accomplishments of this very strange and uh, important figure in the history of American politics, Pat Cadell. Uh, so um, Pat Cadell uh, was, you know, Carter's pollster. He'd been George McGovern's pollster. He started his polling company in Harvard out of his dorm room. And he was the guy who figured out that, you know, basically the, the politician of the future would be an anti-politician 
would run against Washington. <clears throat> One of his first successful campaigns was Joe Biden for Senate in 1972. He told him not to mention his opponent, just to mention that he was running against Washington. And uh, Jimmy Carter fell in love with him, and he was very influential in kind of creating the image of Jimmy Carter as this guy who was just an honest toiler, honest peanut fire farmer from you know a small town in Georgia, which was only true as far as it went, right? Uh, and what he did in 1976, what Cadell did, was he devised a slogan for Carter that was absolutely brilliant. So George Wallace had a slogan, uh, that was kind of speaking to the alienation of the you know lower middle class white people. Uh, send them a message, right? It was the same kind of you know own the libs kind of message that we've heard you know a thousand times since. Uh, Pat Cadell said this time, don't send them a message, send them a president. And the reason it was brilliant was that it simultaneously kind of spoke to the alienation of white Southerners vis-a-vis you know kind of the snobs of the Northeast, and also said this time we'll really get them. You know, we'll really show them this time. So it's not quite accurate. <laughs> uh, it was kind of a willful misinterpretation among liberals to say Jimmy Carter, you know, beat George Wallace by, you know, promising a revival of the New Deal and, you know, the politics of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. It was, it was, it had a Trumpian Wallace appeal, right? And, but it was enormously important. And up in New York, lots of people, among them William Vanden Heuvel, who has a you know, role in the nation, uh, sold Jimmy Carter as the guy who was both from the South and was a post-racist Southerner, which of course he was, and that this guy kind of checked all the boxes and could perform political miracles. And that really was very central to how Jimmy Carter won the presidency in 1976. Uh, he became all things to all people. And he was very good at sort of fudging exactly where he stood on issues. Uh, I tell a story in the first chapter of the book of Gerald Ford's pollster kind of trembling and explaining uh, how um, Jimmy Carter had the support of pro-gun control people, anti-gun control people, pro-abortion people, anti-abortion people, liberals, conservatives, labor, business, uh, which is a great way to win an election, but a terrible way to govern once you get there, because then all those checks have to be cashed. And once he became president, uh, it became evident that he his most dominant political identity and his greatest passion was one he hadn't mentioned at the campaign trail at all, which was the call for sacrifice, the call for austerity, the, the claim that we were living in, 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 in wartime-like conditions, which only see, he seemed to notice, and that we had to kind of do what our parents did to win World War II and kind of tighten our belts and uh, that meant consistently, and I got to give the chapter and verse in the book, retreating from the kind of New Deal politics that had elected uh, Democrats for generation, the uh, tax, 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 spend, 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 elect, elect, elect formula that drove Republicans batty because they said, you know, no one shoots Santa Claus. No one's going to shoot a politician that promises to send them checks <laughs> or jobs from the federal treasury. <laughs> and of course, one of the first big things Jimmy Carter does is he cancels 50 dam projects uh, because he doesn't think they're kind of, you know, they, they, they don't meet his engineer's muster. But of course, these dam projects were the sort of things local politicians relied upon uh, to deliver votes. So yeah, uh, that was basically uh, the lane that opened up for Ted Kennedy to challenge Jimmy Carter in 1980. And the tension uh, gets very nasty and personal around 1978 and 1979 around the issue of health care. Jimmy Carter has promised a national health care program. He eventually 
makes a proposal that, you know, by today's Obamacare, Clinton care standards is downright Bolshevik, uh, you know, it's, it's <laughs> merging Medicare and Medicaid and greatly expanding all kinds of stuff. Uh, Ted Kennedy is proposing a single payer program that Carter complains can only get six votes in the Senate. And after Jimmy Carter gives his big announcement, I think this is early 1979, Ted Kennedy gives a press conference in which he says that Jimmy Carter is proposing separate but equal health care, which is such a nasty slam. Ooh. It's such a nice troll because Jimmy Carter is this guy who completely dotes on his identity as the guy who's, who's emerged and turned his back on the South's racism and of course, here's Ted Kennedy calling up the specter of Plessy versus Ferguson, the Supreme Court case that said that uh, segregation is legal as long as it's separate but equal. And it's on. It's a terrible feud. Well, uh, you know, I'm a professional historian, and uh, it's one of my jobs to learn the lessons of history. And, and I studied the Goldwater uh, election very carefully, as so many did, and I concluded that this meant that Reagan had no chance of winning. I was gleeful when R Reagan won the nomination in 1980 because Goldwater, the lesson of history was that a right-wing Republican could not get elected president in America. And Reagan was the Republican most closely identified with Goldwater because of that speech at the 64 convention. Reagan also believed in voodoo economics. He wanted to get rid of detente and go back to the Cold War. He was a second-rate actor who played opposite a chimp in bedtime for Bonzo. Reagan was not only impossible right-wing candidate, he was also a joke. I don't think I was the only one who learned that lesson from history. Yeah, well, you ignored a lesson of history, which was that <laughs> Ronald Reagan couldn't possibly become governor of California in a liberal state. <laughs> Ronald Reagan loved teaching that lesson to people again and again, and among the people who did not learn it were uh, the Carter campaign. Rick Hertzberg, who was Carter's speechwriter, uh, was the guy who told me that they were absolutely convinced that all they needed to do was get Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter next to each other on a debate stage, and uh, the public would realize, and I, I call a chapter this, quoting a Carter strategy member that memo that Carter is smarter than Reagan. And they made sure to negotiate the terms of the debate to give uh, Carter as much time as possible to patiently and pedantically explain all the ways that Ronald Reagan was lying or, or was wrong or, or was getting his facts wrong. First, Jimmy Carter pointed out quite factually that Ronald Reagan had been against Social Security in his 1964 Goldwater speech. And Ronald Reagan spun some ridiculous tale involving a widow and an orphan that I that it was impossible to follow, but it was incredibly charming and uh, managed to kind of sufficiently cloud the waters to make it seem like Jimmy Carter was the one telling a fib. And then realizing he had not quite landed that blow a couple of minutes later, uh, Carter pointed out completely factually that uh, Ronald Reagan had begun his national political career in 1961 as a national spokesman for the American Medical Association, in which he claimed that if Medicare is passed, we'll be telling our children about what it was like when America was free. And let me interrupt at this point, because this is the most memorable part of the debates of 1980. People only know one thing that Reagan said to Carter, there you go again. And that's what we remember. Not that they were talking about a health care for all 
government health care program and that Carter was right that Reagan opposed Medicare. Why do we remember there you go again and not the substance of what they were debating? Because human beings are just terrible, terrible animals, you know. <laughs> I, 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 I have no idea, but I can tell you that Rick Hertzberg told me that when Ronald Reagan lied through his teeth with this charming smile, that backstage the Jimmy Carter people were all, were all high-fiving each other because they knew the next day's headlines would be Reagan lies about record on Social Security and Medicare. Instead, all the punditry was, wow, Reagan isn't so, isn't so doddering after all. And, and look what a you know, pedantic, you know, boring, you know, sort of schoolmarm Jimmy Carter is. And they went into the debate, tied, and this is one of the cases in history where a debate had a very profound effect on the outcome. Well, the heart of your book is the rise of the culture war as the key political weapon of the new right. And that means it's time for your Minnesota moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. In 1978, you say in your book, the new right organized to repeal a gay rights ordinance that had been passed in St. Paul. I was amazed to see how broad the opposition to gay rights were, not just the evangelical preachers and the Catholic archbishop, the opponents of gay rights included the DFL, the Democratic Party, all the big unions, the Lutherans, the Methodists, the Episcopalians, and the Minnesota Rabbinical Association. The Jews were against gay rights. Jerry Falwell came to St. Paul and led a rally where a thousand activists cheered him saying that gay people engaged in, quote, murderous, horrendous, twisted acts, close quote, and the gay rights ordinance of St. Paul was struck down in 1978 by a vote of two to one. How did hostility to gay rights become such a powerful issue in the late 70s? It's one of those examples where, you know, Hitlerian big lie politics really kind of went big time in the United States of America. The first initiative of this sort was in Miami, you know, in, 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 in Dade County, uh, led by, you know, the pop singer Anita Bryant, who was kind of like this, this, this kind of like Lee Greenwood, proud to be an American patriotic pop singer. And the whole argument was that gays were recru recruiting young people to become gays. They can't reproduce, so they have to recruit. <laughs> which is just like absolutely nuts. Uh, but I think that in a time of profound social change, when sort of the, the liberation movements of the 60s were kind of working their way through the institutions, this was a way for people to kind of register their anxiety about change as such. Reagan himself came out against the Briggs Initiative in California in 1970, 1977, that was an, an initiative to ban the gays from teaching that was way ahead, two to one. And then Reagan came out against it, uh, supporting gay teachers. Right. One example where uh, it's really one of the great stories for the left in the book, because what happened, a couple things, we'll get to Reagan, but first we'll get to the campaign itself. The guy who, this is really well told, by the way, in the movie Milk that the guy who was running the campaign uh, for the pro-gay rights side was this guy, David Goodstein, who was this very kind of she-she publisher-editor of the gay paper, uh, The Advocate. And 
because of the backlash against gay rights that was going on and because of actual lynchings of gays that had happened, he was terrified that gays remain in the background in this campaign, in which he literally said that gays' role in the the campaign should be stuffing envelopes and that people should avoid coming out. And uh, they weren't doing very well. And then another guy comes in on the left track, this city council member, Harvey Milk, and he says, no, the only way we're going to win this thing is to convince our neighbors that we are their neighbors, right? So he, um, he makes sure that the um, gay pride parade in San Francisco in 1978 takes coming out as its theme. Uh, he writes on the back of a sign, a placard, I'm Harvey Milk, I'm from Woodmere, New York, and people did it. They wrote the small towns that they came from because, of course, San Francisco had become the city of refuge where gays from all over the country came to, to live safely and in peace. But it was only by saying, no, we have to lean into this. We have to say that gays and lesbians are everywhere. We are your neighbors. We are contributing members to society that the tide turned. But another reason the tide turned was David Mixner, uh, a very uh, experienced um, left-wing activist who had um, one of the organizers of um, the moratorium protest in uh, 1979, uh, 1969, I should say, had the idea to approach Ronald Reagan and to argue that this was government control run amok, that that teachers would lose control of their classroom because kids could accuse their teachers, you know, if they just, you know, got a bad grade. And somehow this, this, this persuaded Ronald Reagan, who had, you know, he had, had some history of tolerance uh, when it came to gays, but also some history of bigotry, which was quite typical at the time. And once he said uh, that he was against this initiative campaign, support on the right dried up. Now we should add that I published you know, private letters that he wrote in which he said, you know, if any laws should have to be passed to keep gays from promoting their lifestyle, I'll be the first in line to endorse them, but just this is not the one. Right. So let's not, you know, kind of make it out that, you know, like uh, uh, Ronald Reagan is, you know, the uh, the Rosa Parks of the, you know, gay rights movement in California in 1978. But lo and and behold, this this loses. And uh, next year is the tragic story, of course, of Harvey Milk's assassination and not just his assassination, uh, but a deliberate political assassination by a cop who was adopted by cops as a martyr and a hero. And when the city council member, former cop who shot Harvey Milk and the mayor, uh, uh, Moscone, George Moscone, uh, went to trial, basically the city attorney threw the case because it was kind of like a blue flu kind of thing. There was this terror that if Dan White went to jail and was punished to the full extent of the law, that they would lose control of the city. So it was a very ugly, frightening, terrifying portent of you know what was to come next year with Reagan's victory. So if you look at the electoral map of 1980, looks like Reagan won everything. And indeed, he triumphed in the Electoral College, but this was not a popular landslide. He got only 51%. And people like me, you know, had been saying that American voters did not like right-wing Republican ideas and policies. Did Reagan's victory prove that we were wrong? It was not an ideological mandate by any by any means. In fact, you know, I have survey results that you know thirty five percent of Americans believe that social programs should be cut. You know, he won because the economy was terrible because Jimmy Carter was not an effectual advocate, 
And there was, of course, a third party candidate, a John, uh, independent candidate who by the, by November had decided that he could take most of his votes from Carter. So he began hammering hard against Jimmy Carter. And the, the exit poll results are based the majority of people who are voting for Reagan were voting against Carter. And the majority of people who were voting for Carter were voting against Reagan. There was enormous apathy, very low voter turnout. And my favorite illustration that I found in the book is a, a cartoon of a guy on election day pulling the curtain and then hanging himself <laughs> when faced by the choices. <laughs> so people are looking in your book for clues about the triumph of Trump. But, you know, what I take away from this is Trump really is not like Reagan. I mean, just look at the Republican convention that's underway right now. The, the darkness, the anger, the fear-mongering. Reagan was sunny and cheerful. Trump, Trump is not sunny and cheerful. What else am I leaving out here? Well, I think that the Reagan movement had a lot of similarities to, to Trump, right? I mean, Reagan, one, one of the reasons for his political genius was his ability to put this genial face uh, on a movement that was full of, you know, murderous rage. I mean, literally Jerry Falwell is going out and saying a homosexual will just as soon kill you as look at you. I had this amazing quote from Pat Robertson. Uh, he's talking about why he doesn't support Jimmy Carter. He says, God wants stability. It's better to have a stable government under a crook than turmoil under an honest man. So, you know, any idea that to the Christian rights turn to Donald Trump is some sort of novel development, you know, you've got another thing coming, right? So what we're looking at is uh, an element of a political coalition and a reactionary energy in American politics, uh, which is quite continuous. And the fact that, you know, as the social base for this kind of politics diminishes and diminishes and diminishes, they have to kind of scream at the top of their lungs in order to maintain it and, and, and cheat and lie, which, of course, <laughs> I adduce evidence of this in the book, too, this Liat water and this water stone and the Paul Manafort. So they're all there, right? But the figurehead is very, very different. One of the key differences in the figurehead is that Reagan really was an ideologue through and through. And Trump really is not an ideologue. Trump you know, Trump will go wherever he, he needs to. Um, he wants to advance his own, you know, financial interests and his own family. And it happens that it works out that the Republican Party is the way to do this. So he's happy to adopt the tax. And Well, he's an ideologue when it comes to clubbing people of color over the head. I mean, he's pretty, he's pretty principled on that. Reagan, as you have said, lied a lot, but it was always for the purpose of advancing the agenda of of the right. Trump just lies in general, you know. I think that's a maybe not a major difference, but it's an interesting difference. It is an interesting difference. I mean, um, Ronald Reagan could lie without even being aware he was lying, you know, because he had that sort of blindness of affect, right? So what did Reagan have that Trump doesn't, aside from the sunny outlook and the charm? You know, people make fun of him for this. You know, he, he could take direction, right? He could delegate. He knew what he was supposed to say in public and what he was only supposed to say in private. Sometimes he, you know, honored that only in the breach, and that usually made news. Like when he said something like, oh, um, you know, 1986, he said, South Africa has made greater strides in race relations than we have in America. Uh, but that always became, you know, what the heck did he just say? But there's no front stage and backstage when it comes to Donald Trump. If somehow the, the Donald Trump, you know, Oval Office tapes suddenly dropped tomorrow, none of us would be particularly surprised about what we heard on them. Whereas, you know, in, a couple of weeks ago in the New Republic, I had an article comparing 
the letters that were ghostwritten for Ronald Reagan to sign to the ones he actually dictated to his friends. And, you know, it was night and day. Tell us a little more about those letters. <laughs> How much time do you have? I'll just give one example of, of, of one of his letters that he signed and one example of one of his letters that he dictated. Uh, my favorite letter that he signed was a letter to an intellectual who had sent him a book about foreign policy. And uh, the letter that he signed said, uh, I learned so much from your book. And the letter had been advanced to him to sign with a cover note from his aide saying, don't bother to read the book. <laughs> okay. So that's, that's, that's the letters he signed. My favorite letter that he uh, dictated talked about um, how biblical prophecies uh, uh, foretold what was going to happen in the Middle East. Or maybe it was the, one to, <laughs> the ones to his friend Gene Dixon, the, the, the newspaper psychic. You know, if Donald Trump was into newspaper psychics, we'd hear about it from the Oval Office. And I wonder if you have any uh, closing thoughts on the Republican convention. We are speaking after day one, so there is more to come. But we got a a big dose of the Trump Republican Party uh, on the first night. It's straight out of George Orwell. I mean, it's like night is day, up and down. And I'm absolutely convinced. You cannot tell me that Kimberly Guilfoyle did not study Adolf Hitler's podium cadences. Uh, and I'm, it's not a joke. Uh, it's really scary stuff. And I think the bright side is the number of swing voters that are likely to be moved by this kind of stuff probably is uh, ceilinged in the single digits. It's really scary stuff. Rick Perlstein, his magnificent new book is Reaganland, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. 1,100 pages testing the limits of bookbinding technology. <laughs> Totally smart and totally fun to read. Rick, thanks so much for the book and thanks for talking with us today. Until next time, John. Now it's time to talk again with Pramila Jayapal. She represents Seattle in the House of Representatives, and she describes herself as a lifelong organizer. She's co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, and she's written a wonderful book, Use the Power You Have, A Brown Woman's Guide to Politics and Political Change. Pramila Jayapal, welcome to the program. John, thank you so much for having me. Well, your new book tells the story of how you got into political work. You are an immigrant from India who came to the United, the United States in 1982 to go to college. You were not yet 17 years old. You know, my dad had very little money in his bank account. I talk about this. He had $5,000 left in his bank account. He used all of it to send me here. And when your parent makes a sacrifice like that and sends your, their kid across the ocean, not knowing if they're ever going to come back, as it turns out, we've never lived on the same continent <laughs> since I was 16. They're oh. still in India. You know, he had a very special idea of what success meant. To him, success meant you're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer, because that was what would guarantee your future financial stability. Well, you started out by doing what your father wanted when you graduated. You applied for jobs in investment banking. Uh, I love the story you tell about how in one of your job interviews, you were asked what you would do in a meeting if a male colleague said, honey, go get me some coffee. What was your answer? I said I would do just what I'm going to do now. And I got up and left. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and what happened then? 
Well, they, they called me back and they said, oh, you're exactly the kind of woman we want. You know, come back and, and, and uh, we'll give you a job offer. And I said, thank you very much, but no thank you. Um, and I, I did not end up working for that firm. I worked for another investment banking firm in leverage buyouts um, in the mid-1980s when Mike Milken was king and leverage buyouts were really big. And I will tell you that it taught me a couple of things. First of all, it taught me what I didn't want to do for the rest of my life, and that was investment <laughs> okay. banking. So I left, and I tell people that's very important to find out what you don't want to do as much as it is to find out what you do want to do. But the other thing it taught me was very strong skills in financial uh, analysis, financial management. I'm very comfortable with numbers. I'm very comfortable with, um, you know, all of that. And so that has really served me well, both as when I was starting a nonprofit organization that became the largest immigrant advocacy organization in Washington state, but also now serving on the budget committee, you know, coming up, talking to some of the world's best economists, uh, Nobel Prize winning economist, Joseph Stieglitz, as I'm creating the Paycheck Recovery Act. Um, I think that that experience actually really helped to build my confidence in those areas that have been quite important. Um, and certainly as I'm calling out Wall Street now, um, I understand what that means. And even questioning Sundar Pichai <laughs> from Google the other day, I talked about how the ad exchange that Google has is sort of like um, an unregulated stock market where people can, can engage in insider trading. You know, so I, I draw on these experiences all the time and what I'm doing now, even though it's not what I ended up doing with my life. So when you left investment banking, you went to the other end of society, uh, Cabrini Green in Chicago, in what is often called a bad neighborhood. But you said you liked working in a, what's called a bad neighborhood. How come? Well, I was tutoring Cabrini Green. It was was not no longer exists, but was one of um, the largest uh, projects in South Chicago. And I really wanted, I was in graduate business school, but I really wanted to do things that mattered and tutoring kids was something that appealed to me. And so I would make my trek down to South Chicago and, and being in the midst of that project, that housing project was formative because I saw how people lived and I saw the things that we needed to do as government to really provide safer environments, better housing for people. And then, of course, I got very deeply into Saul Alinsky and uh, community organizing in the south end of Chicago, working with Mary Houghton and the South Shore Bank. And I, I want to ask you about South Shore Bank because you say one meeting there changed your life. That's pretty dramatic. What kind of single meeting could change a person's life? Well, I met Mary Houghton, who was the executive director of South Shore Bank, one of the founders. And um, she introduced me to the idea that I could use my business skills for good, that I could focus on economic development as a way to make vocation and avocation the same thing. And so that was the beginning of really opening my eyes to this whole other world. I could use my business skills, but do economic development. I ended up going to Thailand and working in refugee camps and doing rural economic development. And then, of course, eventually moving into the public sector. You have one great sentence when you uh, describe your decision to leave the private sector. You say, let's be real. It takes a lot to get rid of the pressure and expectations of your family. I think every immigrant kid in college right now knows exactly what you're talking about. How did you do it? 
Well, I just, um, I had to trust myself. And then I had to say to my parents, look, you've given me all of the foundations. And now you have to trust me. You have to, you have to allow me to trust myself and you have to trust me. And it was not an easy thing. And my dad, for years, even when I had started the most successful immigrant rights organization in the state, I, you know, he's there, he's meeting the governor, who's our keynote speaker, and he says, oh, yes, she likes to do this volunteer work. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it just takes a lot, you know, to, to kind of change how your parents see things. But I will say that I think that they're proud of me. They scratch their, they scratch their heads many times during my career, but I just kept saying, look, this is what I want to do. This is what makes my heart happy. This is what I believe I can do to make a difference. And in the end, I had to just follow my path. So you went to Thailand and worked in a refugee camp. Then you decided to go back to India. You came back to the United States. You got married. You had a baby. You got divorced. You moved into your own place as a divorced mother. Your baby had health problems. And what was the date you moved? September 10th. 2001, mm. day before September 11th. And you say that 9-11 was the first time in America that you felt scared, and it wasn't another terrorist attack that frightened you. That's right. It was the um, hatred that I saw, um, the xenophobia that I saw, and the incursions of civil liberties ultimately by the government in the wake of the passage of the Patriot Act and so many other things you know, the original Muslim ban was passed right after 9-11. Um, and I saw that and I saw the sort of the, the way in which patriotism, um, you know, combines with fear to suppress dissent. So all of a sudden, all these people um, with all these hate crimes and the Bush administration actually themselves in, you know, moving forward policies that, curtailed civil liberties for people just because of where you were born or what religion you practiced. And yet, if you tried to speak up against that, somehow you were on the side of terrorists. It was us versus them, and you were with them. And it reminded me of the Japanese internment and other times in our country where um, patriotism and fear together have been used, as I said, to suppress dissent. And I felt like I needed to speak out against that. And, um, and so I did. What I thought originally was going to be just fighting individual hate crimes by some individuals against another very quickly turned into fighting the U.S. government, taking on the Bush administration, successfully winning um, uh, a lawsuit around the deportation of thousands of Somalis, and then going on to constantly challenge the deportations, to secret detentions, and all of the things that happened in the wake of 9-11. You have a great story about uh, meeting your Seattle congressman who was the predecessors in the seat you now hold, Jim McDermott, your idea was to declare the entire state of Washington a hate-free zone. He liked the idea and said, uh, where do we start? And you said, how about tomorrow? And what was his response? <laughs> he leaned back in his chair and he looked at me and he said, who are you again? <laughs> because these are, this was just six days after 9-11, and I was saying we needed to get the governor and the mayor and everybody to come out, declare the state a hate-free st zone. You end your book with the lessons you've learned, and the first one is 
own yourself and stay open. You say, don't try to be someone, try to do something. Explain what you mean. Well, I think that there are a lot of people, particularly in politics, um, who think about who they want to be, not what they want to do. And the only reason I'm, I like being a member of Congress is because it gives me a platform to do things that I think are going to make a difference for the world. And so I just want people to be authentic to themselves, to not change themselves because they think that that's going to bring them more power and prestige, but also to think about your legacy of action, not just having a title before your name. That's great. But the only reason I like the title is because it allows me to go to the airport in the wake of the Muslim ban and threaten to storm the airport if I don't get to talk to the head of customs and, and border protection and get the people off the plane that are about to be deported on the tarmac, you know, or because I can use my position to get into a federal prison and talk to hundreds of moms and dads who have been separated from their children. So that's the action and it has to be about the action. Um, and you've got to be real for who you are and what you believe in. And the last lesson in your book is leave space for new leadership to emerge. Don't hang on to power. But we want you to stay in power. We need you to stay in power. <laughs> well, I will stay in power for as long as I feel like there's something that I can achieve. And, you know, when I stepped down from One America, people thought I was crazy. It was 12 years. I was there as the executive director. I built it from nothing to this incredible organization that had done so much. And they said, why are you leaving? It's the height of your success. And I said, well, first of all, I'd rather leave when I'm at the height of success than when I'm on the downturn of it. Okay. Um, and secondly, you know, change is good. So it doesn't mean we're going to leave immediately. But we do have to continue to be aware that there's time for other people to come forward. And there's lots of people to come forward and do that work. Pramila Jayapal, her new book is Use the Power You Have, A Brown Woman's Guide to Politics and Political Change. Pramila, thanks for everything you do. And thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much, John. I love the nation. So thank you so much for what you do. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe online to our print and digital magazine at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe with this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners. You can get digital access to all our articles for less than $1.50 a month. Or you can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. That's at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe, one word. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts. At Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.
Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. 